I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we will be discussing among the most hotly contested questions of this Supreme Court term, as well as our political season, and that is the constitutional dimensions of the right to vote. On November 12th, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in two combined cases from Alabama that challenge the organization of the state's legislative districts. And we also have a number of lawsuits underway in the states, including North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, and Ohio involving voting rights. Just this week, the Supreme Court delayed the start of early voting in Ohio and the Fourth Circuit blocked part of North Carolina's slate of new election rules. Joining me to discuss this timely and important issue are two of the nation's leading experts on voting rights. Rick Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at UC Irvine School of Law. He's an expert in election and campaign finance law and author of the indispensable and justly popular election law blog. John Eastman is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service and former dean at the Chapman University Fowler School of Law. He is director of the school's Constitutional Jurisprudence Clinic. Rick, let's jump right in. You wrote a great piece recently uh, for your blog, and it was called The Voting Wars Heat Up. And you really summarize the basic issues which unite the Alabama redistricting cases, the voter ID cases, the early voting cases. You said all of these raise the same fundamental two questions. When is the Constitution violated by cutbacks in voting rules? And when does a burden on minority voters violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act by depriving these voters of the same opportunity as other voters to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice? Well, I'd like to apply that helpful framing to the major voting rights cases. Let's start with Ohio and the early voting cases where the Supreme Court declined to uh, reinstate early voting this week. What are the constitutional and Section 2 questions in that in that case? Uh, well, I should just mention this piece uh, that you're referring to uh, appeared in Slate magazine. And, uh, ah, even better. You, you can find it there. Uh, the What ha happened in Ohio is similar to a pattern that we've seen in other uh, states with Republican legislatures in that in the last few years, uh, re mostly Republican legislatures have passed laws that make uh, voting uh, registration rules and voting times and, and, and voter qualification rules stricter. The reason that this is happening now is that uh, there have been a couple of earlier Supreme Court cases which seem to have freed states to do this. First, uh, there was a 2008 case that the Supreme Court decided called Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, which uh, upheld against uh, federal constitutional equal protection challenge, Indiana's voter ID law. And second, although less relevant to Ohio, in 2013, the Supreme Court decided a case called Shelby County versus Holder, which essentially put an end to the earlier Voting Rights Act Section 5 provision requiring that jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination in voting get pre-approval or pre-clearance before they change their voting rules. With those two decisions, uh, we've seen legislatures pass uh, these kinds of restrictions on voting rules, and Ohio is one of the states that did that. Ohio cut back on early voting. It went from about 35 days to 28 days of early voting. It also, in doing so, got rid of one of the Sundays of early voting, uh, which uh, uh, African-American churches had used the Sundays before Election Days uh, to take people from churches to voting, so-called souls to the polls, uh, projects. And perhaps most importantly, 
the provision eliminated what had been called Golden Week, which is a time that if you were a new voter or a moving voter, you could both go and change your voter registration and register to vote, uh, and actually vote, I should say, at the exact uh, same time. That was all eliminated. A federal district court held that these cutbacks violated both the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, a provision that applies nationwide, which you referred to a few minutes ago. The case went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld uh, the uh, decision of the district court. And then just uh, recently, the case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, on a five to four vote without giving uh, any rationale, um, stayed that earlier order, meaning that, that the cutbacks that the Ohio legislature had put into place now go into effect. And so we have this shorter voting period without the weekend, uh, that Sunday voting, and without the golden week. So give us the arguments on both sides of whether or not the extension of the voting rules uh, is prohibited or required by the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Well, let me start with the Section 2 question, because I think that one is a, uh, is a more interesting question, uh, not just in this case, but across these cases. Uh, uh, the sec Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, essentially says that um, a voting practice is illegal if it uh, means that uh, members of protected minority groups uh, have less opportunity to, pol to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Now, Section 2 has been a very powerful tool in the redistricting context where it has been used to uh, require the creation of majority-minority districts, but it has had much less use in the context of what some have called the vote denial cases, cases where uh, rules have been imposed to make it harder to register or to vote, as is at issue in not just Ohio, but in these other cases you refer to, North Carolina, Texas, uh, Wisconsin. And so we have very little um, understanding of how the judiciary is going to interpret those words from Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the context of these vote denial cases. Uh, and what we've seen coming up in the lower courts is a split. Uh, you have cases like the uh, Ohio case, the Ohio case, the case out of North Carolina uh, from the Fourth Circuit, and the Wisconsin uh, District Court case, which uh, read, read Section 2 very broadly to protect minority voting rights and says essentially, if you make things worse for um, minority voters, if there's a disparate impact on minority voters, that's enough to count as a violation of Section 2. But then you have cases on the other side, like the district court case in uh, North Carolina, uh, the case which was just uh, reversed by the Fourth Circuit, which reads Section 2 much more narrowly and says you have to show much more than just a disparate impact on minority voters to show a Section 2 violation. This is an issue that's going to come up to the Supreme Court. And what's at stake here is how much are courts going to use the Voting Rights Act to prevent uh, cutbacks in uh, all kinds of voting rules that had been in place for many years in a lot of these jurisdictions. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for that great uh, summary. Uh, John, we're delighted that you're here and we're, we're, we're talking about the question of early voting in Ohio. Um, and as Rick said, there, there's a split in the circuits. Um, some courts like the Sixth Circuit say that minor burdens of uh, four rather than five weeks violate the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. And then there is the North Carolina court, which says that even when voters are disenfranchised, um, uh, that's not a violation, uh, even if there's no evidence of preventing voter fraud. What is your view on which of the two circuits has it right when it comes to the Ohio early voting case? 
Well, I, I, yeah, I, I think the rule that the states have a lot more leeway here than uh, than some of the courts' uh, interpretation of the Voting Rights Act have suggested. Uh, and and one of the one of the big issues that's kind of lurking there is uh, even if there is a disparate impact, and I think the evidence uh, remains uh, uh, very uh, un, unpersuasive on that. But even if there is a different disparate impact, we've seen in other areas of law that disparate impact is not enough. It may be enough for the statute, but after the City of Bernie decision some years ago by the Supreme Court, uh, which made clear that disparate impact does not create a constitutional violation, and the remedial statutes that Congress uh, adopts has to be in line with the constitutional violation. So you've got to uh, use disparate impact as, as only evidence of, of a discriminatory purpose. Shy of that, uh, that that broader interpretation of the Voting Rights Act may be uh, itself exceeding Congress's power uh, to implement a constitutional violation. And 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 like I say, we don't we don't have the evidence really that there's disparate impact at all. What we do have is serious concern about fraud. Uh, I was uh, in upstate New York just recently, and somebody said every time there's a close election up there, there are busloads of people that come up from you know the, the down uh, New York City way to vote in those elections. And with the more the more free you are with your same day registration, your early voting, and all of that, the more propensity there is to encourage folks to engage in rather large scale fraud. Uh, and that that. Uh, ought to concern all of us because it dilutes the votes of people who actually are legally eligible to vote and it makes their vote much less effective and it then means that we're not deciding elections uh, on the voting standards that we have long had. John, what, uh, Rick, what is your response to John's uh, provocative reading of, of Section 2 and his thoughts about voter fraud more, more generally? Uh, well, on Section 2, I don't think any of these cases have raised the question whether uh, Section 2, if it just applies to disparate uh, impact, uh, would, be it, would be unconstitutional. In fact, uh, during the debate over the constitutionality of Section 5, we were repeatedly assured uh, by opponents of Section 5, don't worry, you've got Section 2, there's no one challenging Section 2. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see this move to the next stage of trying to cut back on voting rights. And in terms of voter fraud, um, there has been really no good evidence that same-day voter registration uh, contributes to an increase, uh, same-day voter registration uh, and voting contributes to an increase in voter fraud. And in fact, this is voting that takes place in person. The state has the ability to check those, those uh, voter rolls and all, uh, and all of that. Now, uh, whether or not there's significant voter fraud, that is not even really the issue in the Ohio case. Now, Ohio was not defending its cutbacks uh, as a means of preventing fraud as much as it was for administrative convenience and efficiency, something which the Sixth Circuit thought was not uh, a strong enough reason. Uh, and the Fourth Circuit, as well, in the North Carolina case, thought that uh, efficiency was not a good enough reason to be restricting voting rights. John, do you believe that Section 2 is unconstitutional? The Supreme Court has split on this. Four justices seem to have come close to saying that it was. And let's just remind our listeners, Section 2 is the part that says that uh, minority voters have the right to elect representatives of their choice. And uh, four conservatives seem to believe that without evidence of intentional racial discrimination, that, that may violate the Equal Protection Clause. Justice O'Connor famously uh, wrote a concurrence to one of her own opinions to stress that she believed Section 2 was constitutional, and Pam Carlin, the legal scholar, had the, had the good line, uh, at last Justice O'Connor has found someone she can agree with herself, but uh, Justice O'Connor has been replaced by Justice Alito. 
Do you believe that there are five votes on the Supreme Court to overturn Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and do you think they should? Well, it, it, it wouldn't overturn Section 2. It would narrow it so that just mere disparate impact uh, or even what we really come to have is, is, is simple allegations unproven of disparate impact is not sufficient. Because remember, Section 2, like all of the Voting Rights Act, is designed to remedy constitutional violations. And the Supreme Court has made clear in case after case after case that the constitutional violation doesn't come from mere disparate impact. It comes from discriminatory intent. Uh, and and we, the court has struck down statutes that relied simply on discriminatory impact or disparate impact because there's no constitutional violation there. And, and you know, that, ex that means it exceeds Congress's powers under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment or the parallel provision under the 15th Amendment to remedy a constitutional violation uh, by imposing a standard higher than the Constitution requires. And so I think that's the issue. You would still have a Section 2 that, if I, that I could use disparate impact as evidence of discriminatory intent. And if I can make that turn, uh, then, then there would be a Section 2 violation. There would be a constitutional violation, and Section 2 would be designed to remedy that constitutional violation as a result. Rick, do you believe that the court will consider the constitutionality of Section 2 by narrowing in the way that John suggests in the Alabama redistricting cases? And if not, tell us what the stakes, the constitutional and statutory stakes, are in the Alabama redistricting cases and what's going on after the Republican-controlled legislature in Alabama after the 2010 census created a new map that keeps the same number of majority-minority state and house district, but with much larger African-American majorities than they had before, uh, a, 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 a result that Democrats say has harmed Democratic voting success across the state. Yeah, the Alabama case is a really interesting case, and I would say that it's very different than the cases we've been talking about, the cases involving uh, uh, Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Ohio, all of which involve these questions of, uh, as we've been discussing, the meaning of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, as well as the um, uh, scope of the Equal Protection Clause. What's at issue in the uh, uh, Alabama case is a rule of the Supreme Court first put forward in a 1993 case called Shaw versus Reno. That was a case where Democrats drew some really unusually shaped districts and kind of a partisan gerrymander to create as many um, Democrat districts as they could, but they also needed to comply with what the Justice Department thought was required under uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, a provision that we talked about earlier that, that used to require jurisdictions like North Carolina to maintain the same number of majority minority districts that they had. In the Shaw case, and then in subsequent cases, including the Bush versus Vera case that, that you mentioned, the Supreme Court said that uh, it is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause to separate voters on the basis of race into districts and to do so without an adequate justification, such as uh, needing to do it to comply with the Voting Rights Act. In Shaw and in a, a, a line of cases the Supreme Court decided in the 1990s, the court put forward this theory of, of, of uh, unconstitutional racial gerrymandering, and it was used, I think, invariably in those cases to help Republicans um, uh, uh, stop Democrats from creating more majority-minority districts or stop the Department of Justice from requiring the creation of more majority-minority districts and, and to help Republicans uh, get, uh, uh, have greater advantage in redistricting. In the Alabama case, we're seeing the racial gerrymandering claim being flipped, and it's now being used by Democrats 
claiming that Republicans are packing African-American voters into districts in order to increase uh, uh, the voting strength of whites. Now, uh, is this about race, in which case it could be an unconstitutional racial gerrymander, or is it really about parties? It's really about a battle between Democrats and Republicans. Of course, there's huge overlap here because, especially in the South and places like Alabama, almost all African-American voters vote for the Democrats, uh, and most white voters vote for Republicans. So the court's going to have to differentiate the kind of the intent of the legislature. If the intent here is partisan, then it's not unconstitutional. If the intent is racial, then it is unconstitutional. And it's not clear to me how the court's going to rule in this case. John, uh, the conservative justices were quite robust in applying Shaw v. Reno to police out any racial gerrymanders where the primary purpose was racial. Could you imagine some conservative justices voting to strike down the Alabama districting on those grounds. I, I, I could, but I want to I want to step back here a bit because I, I think there's a bigger uh, issue here, the way these things are now being deployed. And in the 1990s, it was the Bush Justice Department that launched this effort. In Georgia, for example, uh, there was one Republican and nine Democrats before redistricting. And then when the Department of Justice under the Bush administration pushed the Max Black plans, you ended up with eight Republicans and three black Democrats. Uh, uh, so a, a huge partisan advantage for Republicans by pushing the Max Black plans uh, that the, the more aggressive use of the Voting Rights Act uh, allowed or even required, is, is depending on, on your interpretation of it. Um, and, and, you know, this, this is just a devastatingly bad for our civic politics. Uh, it's almost like a South African Group Areas Act. Let's pack everybody who's African-American into certain districts and pack all the whites into other districts, and never the twain shall meet. We, we lose the ability to communicate with each other. Uh, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an, another kind of insidious um, uh, assumption that underlies these, that any, any African-American, whether they're in downtown Savannah or in downtown Atlanta or in the rural parts of Georgia or in the Alabama case, you know, the difference between, you know, kind of in, in the city or out in the, in the rural countryside, that just because of the color of their skin is the same, they have a co community of interest that ought to prevail over everything else. Uh, and I think that's uh, devastatingly uh, stereotypical. It's, it's racist at its core. And we really need to get beyond this. Uh, and the way you get beyond it is you don't allow the use of race. You don't even allow the data to be available when you're doing redistricting. You look at other things. You look at uh, city and county lines, uh, the true communities of interest, uh, those kind of things uh, when, you, when you do redistricting. And, you know, the Voting Rights Act is now become a manipulative tool for partisan ends that's destroying our, our, our civic virtue and politics. Rick John says that this is really bad on civic uh, grounds as a policy matter. Uh, do you believe it would be inconsistent as a constitutional matter for the same conservative justices who were so aggressive about policing racial gerrymanders in Shabby Reno not to police the racial gerrymander in Alabama? Well, you know, uh, I was never a fan of the racial gerrymandering claim, so I would I would be quite happy to see it completely disappear. It kind of disappeared on its own after the Justice Department stopped um, requiring the creation of more majority-minority districts under uh, somewhat aggressive readings of the vote, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court had, had uh, pushed back against in a number of other cases. Um, but uh, you may remember that one of the last cases that the Supreme Court decided in this area uh, was a case uh, uh, called Easley versus Cromartie. It was actually the fourth time the Supreme Court had 
examined North Carolina's voting rules uh, in the same decade. And, and in that case, um, on a five to four vote, the four liberals and Justice O'Connor uh, found that uh, North Carolina's latest gerrymander was not our unconstitutional racial gerrymander because it was intended for partisan gain rather than uh, for, uh, for any kind of racial motive. Um, and that requires looking at the intent of the legislature. I find the whole exercise to be quite artificial because, as I've mentioned, especially in the South, the overlap between race and party is just so strong that it's really impossible to separate these two things. And I don't know what kind of world John lives in, but in the world I'm in, um, uh, especially if we're going to have legislatures be the ones doing the redistricting, there's no way we can imagine they're going to do it without taking into effect demographic trends. And the reason for that is because they track so well with with their own partisan interests of the parties. And so this, this is inevitable. And I should point out that just this week, the Supreme Court agreed to hear yet another case, a redistricting case out of Arizona. And in that case, there's the potential that the justices are going to say that it's unconstitutional to have citizen redistricting commissions to take this stuff out of the hands of state legislatures uh, when we're talking about congressional redistricting under the elections clause. And if that happens, and we're going to have to depend on legislatures to draw these lines, it's going to be a, and continue to be a very political process. Well, it's time, gentlemen, for, for closing arguments. John, I'm going to ask you to uh, speculate about how the court will rule in the Alabama cases and to tell us whether the fact that it reconsidered and narrowed the scope of Section 5 uh, in the Shelby County case will impact uh, the decision in the forthcoming cases, and finally, whether you think it's a good thing for the courts to be so heavily interjected into the political thicket, as Justice Felix Frankfurter called it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I do think uh, the, the court's going to uh, pull back a little bit on this use, explicit use of race, the Max Plax plans and what have you. I think uh, the Alabama redistricting is in trouble for that reason. And, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, uh, the combination of the one man, one vote, constant redoing of district lines uh, with the, the overlay of race that comes from the Voting Rights Act has just been devastatingly bad. And I, and I, I, I think we saw in the Section 5 case uh, recently that they're poised to kind of back away from that precipice, and, and I, I, I hope we see uh, that that trend continue because I think getting us out of this process. And let me let me say why it's important. So let me give you one example. Uh, let's let's say a a, a, a a city council district, and we've got five city council seats. Uh, if I and I've got a 20% African American population, I can put all 20% in one district, and they're guaranteed to you know elect somebody of their choice. And they have one vote on a five-member city council. They lose every election, for, every vote on the council four to one on issues that divide the populace along those lines. Uh, if you if you don't do that kind of districting, that that group areas act type of districting, you then pr provide that 20% swing vote in a number of districts. They have become influence uh, influencers in that district, and everybody in town, every single councilman, has to take uh, consideration of the views of that. A discrete community. I think that's much better for our politics, and it's um, it's something that the political theory of which is pretty clear, but which the current interpretation of the Voting Rights Act has prevented. So I think it's important that we uh, move beyond this exclusive use of race. Uh, thank you so much for those closing thoughts, Rick. Your closing thoughts on how the court's likely to rule in the Alabama 
cases and whether it should be so heavily involved in the political thicket? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what the court's going to do in the Alabama case. I really could see uh, the court, uh, the court might even punt in the case, given that the whole premise for why the redistricting was done was to comply with Section 5, which is no longer in place. So uh, it may turn out that the court won't do much with the Alabama case uh, at all. Uh, in terms of the court's uh, role in the political process, I've been very critical of the specific things that uh, the Roberts Court has done in recent years in uh, restricting or allowing the restriction of voting rights, in uh, deregulating the campaign finance process, in allowing for full partisan gerrymandering to go forward. Um, but I think that courts are uh, best when they uh, act as a backstop to provide basic protections for voters against disenfranchisement. And um, that's uh, something that uh, I don't think we're going to see uh, as the primary role of the court, at least as we have the current five to four conservative liberal split on the uh, Supreme Court. Rick Hassan and John Eastman, thank you for a provocative and illuminating discussion of the constitutional and statutory dimensions of voting rights. Uh, please join us for the next of our We the People Constitutional podcast. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.